Our Heavenly Father, we confess you are our creator. Um, you breathed the spirit of life into dust, and here we are. And Lord, uh, we are wholly and totally dependent on you for everything. And so thank you for your grace that you pour out on us on a moment-by-moment -moment basis to let us be, to let us exist. And Lord, we know that you have no such dependence. You are existence itself. Because you are, there are, there are other things. And uh, Lord, it's, it's a, a majestic and a wonderful thing that you call us to be worshipers of you. We, you call us into your presence to, to worship. And so we gather this morning to do that, to accomplish those purposes. And Father, as we come, we remember those uh, who aren't with us. Uh, Father, there are some who are sick in our congregation. We pray for their healing, for their restoration. Um, Father, we are um, perpetually mindful of a pandemic that we're in. We pray that you would, by your mercy, bring it to an end soon that it would fade into the background, and uh, Lord, that we would uh, be free to gather as we desire instead of having to take precautions. Father, I also think of uh, my brother Daniel Holmquist and his, uh, his uh, fight with cancer. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful that you have given us the medical tools that we have today that he could actually have a, a hope against it. Um, in years past, there was nothing that could really be done effectively, and so we pray for his chemotherapy, Thank you that uh, so far he's feeling some relief from it. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would remove the cancer from his body in a way that would um, just dazzle the, uh, the doctors, that they would have no explanation. So Daniel could tell them, I have friends praying to a powerful, loving, personal, and an omnipotent God. And uh, we pray that you would uh, use his cancer for your glory and his good. Uh, Father, we also want to pray for... Um, Kristen Elder, who's uh, one of our missionaries, as she's changing fields and heading to Spain. Uh, Lord, would you prepare a path for her, show her her connection there, uh, give her some rest as she arrives, but also uh, prepare her heart for ministry. What is it that you're calling her to do in that field? And uh, grant her great fruit, we pray. And Lord, we're mindful of the tensions in Ukraine today. Um, Lord, um, the, the nations rage. They plot a thing in vain. And... Uh, Lord, the response that you have is you who sit in heaven, you laugh at them, you scoff at them. Um, because, Lord, we acknowledge that um, all of these things are in your hands. And so, Lord, we can appeal to you and say, Lord, would you avert war in Ukraine? Would you help us not um, stumble towards World War III or something equally horrible? Um, Lord, would you grant us peace so that your church could be productive in the world and preach the gospel? Uh, so that we might leave, lead quiet and orderly lives and uh, proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is King. And Lord, to that end, we pray that you'd bless our time in your word. Would you help us to see and to understand? Holy Spirit, apply this to us. Make this real and living uh, in our lives. We know, Lord, that you, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make that a reality in our lives this morning. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, I got to tell a little bit of church history before we get to the sermon. And then later in the sermon, I'll come back and use that church history. Okay, so I'm going to tell a story and then just drop it and, and go into the text. But I promise that I'm going to come back to it and, and it's going to make a difference. It's going to mean something. So let me tell you this little bit of church history. So Charles Darwin published Origin of Species, uh, this theory of evolution, and it revolutionized science. 
Um, suddenly, they had answers for where all these critters came from. Uh, up until that point, there were competing ideas of where did, why do we have so many different types of creatures and where do they come from? And one thought was this idea of spontaneous generation. In other words, they would just leap out of the ground and they didn't have any answer for where it came from. So Darwin, observing the natural world, comes up with a theory of evolution. And when he published it, it revolutionized science throughout Europe. It really caught on and tore across Europe. Um, it also had an impact on religion in Europe. Now, in Europe, there was this, this school of thought called German higher, higher criticism, which was trying to strip out the mythology of the Bible and look only at what the, the truth of it was. And so miracles were discounted and that kind of stuff. And it kind of fumbled around for a while. It was, it was prevalent in some schools, but the theory of evolution seemed to just be some gasoline on that fire. And so what happened in Europe is across Europe, uh, schools of thought, churches, those kind of denominations, those kinds of things, embrace something called modernism, which is we don't need miracles, we don't need a creator God, the Bible's not inerrant, it does contain some truths that are good for people, and, and that's what we're going to do. That stuff didn't really land here in the United States right away because we were kind of busy with the Civil War. And after the Civil War, we were engaged in Reconstruction trying to figure out how to put this fractured republic back together. But it did come. And so there were people, um, men like B.B. Uh, Warfield and Charles Hodge, who were writing against it and analyzing it and trying to understand this theory of evolution. And meanwhile, defending the inerrancy of the Bible, the reality of miracles, the, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this fight began, and it, and it became something called the fundamentalist modernist debate. And when we use those two terms, they, they sound a little weird to us today. Fundamentalist, we don't mean what we think of fundamentalist today. The term back then we would use to apply to an, an evangelical, somebody who believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, the reality of uh, miracles, the reality of the resurrection, the, the truth that Jesus is coming back, those were called the fundamentalists at the time. And the people who we would consider to be liberal were called the modernists. They were embracing this new thing. So this fight is going on. Well, it came to a real head in the 1920s. And one of the places that you saw it really come to a head was Princeton University. Now, up to that point, the way that modernism rolled into the churches, generally it went into the schools and, and the professors. You've got to be really smart to think this way, apparently. So the professors would get it, and then it would kind of tumble down into the, con the uh, denominations and the churches, and it would wind up splitting denominations and splitting churches and that kind of thing. A notable exception to that, that trajectory was Princeton. Princeton was the, the denominational school for the Presbyterian Church in the USA. That was the big, huge Presbyterian denomination. And what had happened was um, in... Um, in the 1930s, they had something called an Auburn uh, acknowledgement or an Auburn um, announcement or something like that, agreement. And what they said in this Auburn agreement was a large number of the churches and the denominations said, we will tolerate modernism in our church. We'll embrace this and it'll be okay. And the school, meanwhile, rejected that, especially one of the teachers named J. Gresham Machen. He strongly resisted this. As a matter of fact, he wrote... Uh, um, an opinion piece for the New York Times condemning the Auburn Affirmation. He said, this is, this is a departure from what we believe. Now, the Auburn Affirmation, the first thing it said is, we affirm the truth of the Westminster Confession. So the Westminster Confession is the Presbyterian standard. It's their statement of faith. And so they, they acknowledged that. But then they went on and they said some things that were 
oh, how do we say this, less than helpful? <laughs> For example, when it came to the doctrine of inerrancy, uh, they said in the Auburn Affirmation, the doctrine of inerrancy intended to enhance the authority of scriptures, in fact, impairs their supreme authority for life and faith and weakens the testimony of the church to the power of God unto salvation through Jesus. So though they acknowledged the Westminster, they denied biblical inerrancy. And they said that that was harming the witness of the church. This is the effect of modernism coming through society is we can't believe the Bible. We can't say it's inerrant. It's good, but it's not perfect. So Machen just really strongly opposed this. He was, he was adamant against it. He wrote a book at the time called Christianity and Liberalism, where he really strongly criticized this liberal impulse that was coming into the, uh, the church. One of the people that Machen also criticized was the chairman of the Board of Foreign Missions. That's the Presbyterian Church's uh, missions agency, because though he acknowledged inerrancy and in the reality of miracles, he was really wishy-washy on it, and he would tolerate anybody who said anything. And so uh, there were a couple of missionaries who really questioned it, and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. So Machen attacked, uh, didn't attack, yeah, he attacked him. <laughs> Machen called him out and said, this is not okay. And uh, the missions agencies were really upset because they liked him and they were, you know, voting for him. Well, eventually what happened was Dr. Um, Dr. Machen said, we can't support the missions agency because they're, they're putting uh, modernists in their missions boards. They're putting modernists out into the field. and We don't want people evangelized to the, to the iner- errant word of God. And so Machen and a handful of other churches formed something called the Independent Missions Board uh, for Presbyterian Overseas Missions or something really clunky. Machen was a big, giant brain, and so he came up with funky terms. But he, he created an independent missions board. Well, at the next General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, they condemned it as unconstitutional. They said that the board must disband and that anybody who, uh, they had 90 days to disband, and anybody who didn't, they directed the presbyteries to hold ecclesial trials. Let me explain those terms real quick. Within the Presbyterian Church, each church is independent, but their elders come together and they have oversight over all the churches. And so that's called a presbytery. And so the presbyteries are organized by geographic locations. And so the presbyteries were directed, if you have anybody in your, in your uh, district who is still on the board and not, not stepping down, not um, apologizing, then you have to put them on trial. Now that sounds horrible, but it didn't mean take them to court in a civil court. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you have people who can hear these things? So the way the Presbyterians do it is they will assemble a court and they will have somebody come in, they'll have defense uh, defendants and defenders and uh, a board of people who will hear this case. So that's what they did with Machen is they put him on trial. Actually, they put him and a bunch of other people, about six or seven more ministers on trial. And when the board convened, Machen was found guilty on all six charges and suspended from ministry which meant that he could no longer work in a Presbyterian church, nor could he teach in the school. And so um, the, the, one of his defenders, one of his defense lawyers, was a young man named Charles Woodbridge. And uh, Woodbridge was hired to be the director, the, the chairman of the board of this independent board, missions board. So Woodbridge got it too. He got kicked out also. And so that's the history. That's the history lesson. I had to explain that because I want to come back to mention later in the, uh, in the sermon. I didn't want to interrupt the flow. So don't forget this. <laughs> I'm coming back to it, I promise. 
Um, so with that, let's go ahead and turn to, to Peter. So first Peter, remember we're in this, this uh, paragraph where Peter is telling us, after explaining our salvation to us in the previous portion, now he's telling us, uh, for the first time, he's, he's telling us what to do. He's giving us three imperatives. And so the, the three imperatives are, in verse 13, we are to hope in grace. We are to fix our hope in grace, uh, is what he says there. In, in verse 16, he says, be holy. And so the, the imperative that we're going to look at today is going to be a little bit surprising because it seems to conflict with those, but we'll get to it. So we'll get to our third one today. And by the way, these three actually fit together. They, they latch together and they, they interlock and they are very helpful when we see them that way. Because remember what Peter's doing is he's telling us how to be exiles. He's, he's telling us how to have hope in our exile. And so these three things that he's telling us to do will help give us that hope. So let's take a look. Verse 17. Um, I'm only going to do 17 through 21, just a little piece of it. Um, he begins, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he, he begins by saying, if you call on him as father, and, and that's what we do. Remember in verse 14, he called us obedient as obedient children. Children have a father. Otherwise, they're not children. So what he's saying here is, is, is if you're one of those obedient children, if you're looking to God as father, then you have to do something. If you're looking to God as father, and he is the impartial judge. And, and this is God the father will judge everybody according to their deeds. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So even his children, even God's children, will stand before the judge and be judged. That, that's something that's coming. And you can't think, yeah, but I'm his child. I'll get off with it, right? I'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to be lenient. No, our father is an impartial judge. He's not biased. He's not slanted. I saw a video this week. Um, there was a, um, a police officer who had shot a young man. And she said that she thought she had drawn her taser, but she'd actually drawn her service weapon and shot the young man. And so she claimed it was a mistake. It, was, it wasn't her fault. She wasn't trying to kill him. The jury found her guilty. And when the judge passed sentence, the judge was sitting there crying, going, oh, and she didn't do it on purpose. And it's so wrong that she did this. And, and it's, it's terrible. And so she's getting two years in prison. That's below the minimum sentencing. This is not an impartial judge. An impartial judge would look at this and go, that was the defense she offered. I was convinced, but the jury was not. Therefore, the law says, and this is what's going to happen. So that's not like God. God our Father is not going to stand at the last judgment and look at us and go, oh, but I love him so much, and it's just, it's okay. He's going to be impartial. So if that's the situation that we face, if we call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds what you have done in the flesh, then here's Peter's advice. Here's Peter's command. Here's Peter's directive to us. Conduct yourselves with fear. This is the third imperative. Conduct yourselves with fear. So what on earth does that mean? <laughs> we have to keep this together. This is one thought that he's got. So if he said at the beginning that we are to fix our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and now he's saying, conduct yourselves with fear, 
Is he saying, well, what you should do is hope for grace, but just in case you don't get it, just in case it doesn't come through, you better be really good. Is that what he's saying? That can't be what he's saying. That's not fixing your hope on grace. To fix your hope on grace is to say, I'm, all I'm counting on is, Lord, when I get there and I stand before you, all I can do is say, because of Jesus. I, I am fixed on your grace. So he's not saying here, well, you better be good just in case, just in case the grace isn't right. So what is he talking about? By conducting yourself with fear. What he's getting at here is he's telling us how to fix our hope, and he's telling us how to live holy. So when he says that we should conduct ourselves with fear, the problem that we have is English is not really good in our our common vernacular. It's not really good with the biblical concepts of fear and of love. We think of those as opposites, for example. So when God is on Mount Sinai and he's speaking to the people, and Moses then turns to the people and says, this is Exodus 20, 20, Moses says to the people, do not fear, for God has come to you to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So do you hear what Moses has just said? Don't fear, but fear. What's going on with that? Well, when we look at the biblical concept of the fear of God, there is a right and appropriate, a good fear, a fear that we should have. And then there is a fear that we shouldn't have. We've got to fear the right things. And the real problem is that idea of the fear of God is just hard to explain in English. It's hard to nail it down because the biblical concept for it is is very murky. Here's, Here's another example of somebody fearing in a right way. So this is Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob when he goes and he he falls asleep with his head on a rock and there's a ladder over him and angels are ascending and descending? So this is what happens. This is from uh, Genesis 28. God then says to Jacob, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and you will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done as I promised to you. Would you like to hear that? Would you like to hear God tell you that? That's tremendous. And so here's the response. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So when Jacob wakes up and he remembers this dream, he's afraid, but he's not afraid because God said, I'm gonna get you. You better be on your best behavior. He's afraid because God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to pour out all these great things on you. And so his fear is a fear that's positive, that's good. One of the ways that that people were explaining it is the fear that causes you to lean in, not away. Fear that causes you to fall toward, not fall back. So that's the the idea of good fear. See, our problem, like I said, is, is our notion of love and fear are not really aligned with what the Bible has to say. And so we, we really struggle to get words around this. For example, the New International Ver- Version and the New Living Translation translate that fear from First Peter as reverent fear. 
And the Christian Standard Bible, that's a newer translation, doesn't even use the word fear. It says, conduct yourself in reverence. So here's the problem. I don't think we can define the fear of God as much as we can illustrate or, or describe it. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm not going to have great words for you to wrap around this and you're going to come out and go, I now understand the fear of God. But I hope you go, I get it. I feel it. So there's a book that's uh, written by a man named Michael Reeves. His other book that I really loved is out on the, on the Trinity Reads table called uh, Delighting in the Trinity. His newest one is called Rejoice and Tremble, and it's about the fear of God. And he struggles through the whole thing to define the fear of God. So here's one of the things that he says. He says, if we simply use the word awe, we tend to think of fear as a response only to God's transcendence and power, not his graciousness. Or if we take the word respect, it's a strange term for a response to God's love. And so it is an unbalanced substitute for the word fear. Similarly, reverence can sound too stiff and unresponsive. Not that these words are wrong, it's simply that they're not perfect synonyms for the fear of God. So do you get that idea? We just, we struggle with that. And one of the most stark examples of this is a song by Death Cab for Cutie called, I'll Follow You Into the Dark. And one of the verses goes, in Catholic school, as vicious as Roman rule, I got my knuckle bruised by a lady in black. I held my tongue as she said, told me, son, fear is the heart of love, and so I never went back. The lady in black is not wrong, though she probably could have explained it better. <laughs> and now this, the, 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 the protagonist in the, in the song is, is an atheist. I'm never going back. And so that's, that's kind of the idea, is they can't reconcile the idea of fear and love and fit it together. But the Bible doesn't struggle with that, because its idea of fear, it's awe, it's respect, it's reverence, but it's more than that because it causes people to fall down and to worship. It causes people to, to tremble when God overwhelms them with great promises and says, I'm going to do all these wonderful things for you. So what Peter is telling us is, he's saying, conduct your lives in that kind of fear. Not in God's going to zap me, but God has, has done all these wonderful things for me. He's poured out so many things. So this is the fear that, that he's talking about. And then he says, do this throughout the time of your exile. What is the time of our exile? Well, we're exiles because we're still here on earth. So this planet is not really our homeland, not yet. And, and this country is not really our homeland. And this, this state is not really our homeland. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're travelers through here. So while we're doing this, Peter says, conduct your life in that time in fear. Do it that way. Now, what exactly is Peter telling us to fear? Well, uh, clearly, I think he's, he's speaking of the fear of the Lord, but what aspect, what portion of the fear of the Lord, what does that look like in, in the exact application that he's doing? Read verses 18 and 19. So conduct, yourself, or, um, um, conduct your life in fear throughout the time of your exile, and then 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God sees us as so valuable that to win us, he had to send his son to get us. And, and therefore, that's, that's the, the value we have. And, and 
There are times when we need to hear that. There are also times when you need to hear, you are dust, and God blew breath into you, and you stood up, and to dust you shall return, which is exactly what he told Adam in, in uh, Genesis 3.19. He said, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So dust ain't that valuable. And the breath, God, is God going to run out of breath? He's, he's going to continue to breathe as often as he wants. So then what makes the cost of redeeming us so high? What makes the cost of redeeming us so high is the, the treacherous nature of our sin. Our sin against a holy God is what makes it so costly. And so Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God added to his nature flesh and bone, vein and corpuscle, a heart, blood, so that he could come and die to redeem you. Because your sin is that vile. So this is what, what Peter is pointing us to. He says, look at the cost that was paid for you. And this is where I want to come back to that story of J. Gresham Machen. So when I was in seminary, I was taking church history classes. There was two church history classes. Listen to this. One was Pentecost to the 20th century. The second one was the 20th century. <laughs> like, I don't know why they divided it up that way. But we were talking in the second class, we were talking about uh, Machen and, and the division of fundamentalism and, and uh, uh, modernism and that kind of stuff. And one of the days before the class, I, I was talking with my professor out in the hallway. And he had this report in his hand, and he handed it to me. And he said, this is a transcript of Machen's trial. And he said, there's this fascinating reading because the presbytery told Machen he couldn't use scripture to defend himself. This is an ecclesiastical trial. This is a church trial, and he couldn't use scripture? Does it sound stacked? So, so he's explaining to me the, the story here, and he says, you know, there's, there's a ton of really great theology in there, and, and there's, somebody could go through and, and do a study on that. I think what he was doing is he was pitching to me a PhD dissertation, and uh, not because I'm so brilliant and wonderful. I think he was out fishing for anybody. He wanted somebody to do a dissertation on this thing. I was barely making it through seminary. Um, I'm still barely making it through seminary. There's no way I'm doing a PhD. And so I was like, oh, that's really cool. And he said, yeah, this was Machen's personal copy. That's his signature in the corner. I went, oh, uh, Dr. Woodbridge, you should take this back. This is John Woodbridge, Charles Woodbridge's son. He got this from his dad. And so what struck me as I'm holding this document was the significance of it, the weight of this thing. It was just a pile of papers a second ago. Once I knew what was going on, it actually scared me. I was kind of like backing away as I was handing it to him. Please take this. Not because I thought he would be mad at me for holding it. He handed it to me. And it wasn't because I thought I was going to somehow damage it. I didn't, I'd finished my coffee and threw it away. I was just holding the thing. And it wasn't because I thought the papers were going to attack me or something. I'm not psychotic. I was close, but not that bad. It was the significance of this doctrine in the history. We had just spent a class discussing the history of the fundamentalist-modernist divide. And so I'm looking at this document, and I'm going, this is like a signpost at that split in the roads. This was a, a really important moment, because what happened was Machen went on, and he took some of the other professors from Princeton. They left Princeton and formed Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And I thought, if I ever do a PhD, I'd do it there, and I'm never doing a PhD because I couldn't get in there. 
So I have a lot of respect for that school. Machen also, with a group of other ministers, left the Presbyterian Church in the USA and formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And, and they're still around today. OPC stands for Only Pure Church. Um, I stole that from a friend of mine who goes to an OPC church. But the other thing that happened was a group of ministers left the PCUSA and formed the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a still orthodox, sound, um, fundamentalist, if you want to use the old term, uh, denomination. This, this document that I held was kind of like the, the, the spark that divided that. And it scared me. <laughs> Just it overwhelmed me to hold this thing in my hand. So that's what, what Peter is telling us to do. Is he's saying, look at what it costs to get you redeemed. Look at what God has spent. Look at the immense amount that it costs to cancel your sin, to bring you in and live in fear, that holy fear. I didn't run from the thing scared that it was going to kill me, but I looked at it and I said, this is significant. As important as that document is, as important in church history as that moment was, it's nothing compared to the fact that Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, died on my behalf. It, it dwarfs in, in comparison to that. So we can sometimes get callous and, and think of our salvation very lightly. It was huge. It was, it was giant that God did this. It's, it's gigantic. And what Peter's drawing our attention to is he's saying, look at this. Think about this. Be afraid of the weight of it and delight in who you are. And so this, I think, is why we can look at the command to fix our hope in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ and be told to fear at the same time because both of the things are looking to the same event. They're both looking to the grace that we have. One is the hope that we have because it's ours. And the other one is the cost that it brought us. And so we get these two things holding us together, hope and fear. Hope and fear. They're two guideposts to, to lead us. And so Peter is not done. He wants us to really elevate the, the, the atonement of Jesus Christ. He says that this is with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, he previously had talked about, um, you know, not um, uh, gold or silver. Uh, that's, that's useless. Well, the Jews didn't offer gold and silver as a form of atonement. As a matter of fact, Gold is not mentioned in the book of Leviticus because it's not part of the sacrificial system. So what he's talking about here is probably what the Gentiles did because the Gentiles would have gold and silver. They would bring offerings that way. Um, the other thing is um, thinking of like Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So that was what you hoped in. That was, that was what you did. And, and what Peter says is that was futile. That was useless. As, as valuable as gold and silver is, that's nothing compared to the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. It, it cost a life. Even in the Old Covenant, even in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, it cost a life to deal with your sin. How much more when it's the Son of God, when it's Jesus' precious blood? So, we don't really look to gold and silver that we offer here. You know, like you don't, I don't think anybody puts an offering in the, in the plate and says, oh, hey, I'm good. We're, we're much more sophisticated than that. What is it that you put your hope in? What futile way have, have you inherited from your fathers? Well, it could be any number of things. Our, our hearts are really good at this. It could be politics. It could be money. It could be your looks. They fade. 
It could be your intellect that kind of dulls. It could be relationships that you have. It could be your clothing. It could be likes on social media that you get. It could be respect of others. If we're putting our hope in those things, if that's what we're looking to to say, I'm okay, I've arrived, I'm going to be all right, I have achieved the good life because I got 73 likes on my last post. I'm going to be good. It's going to be great. If we're putting our hopes in those things, what Peter's telling us is those are futile and we've inherited them from our fathers. And instead, what we have to do is look to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to say, that's my hope, that's my significance, that's how God will be good with me, that gives me the good life in exile. I'm not going to be settled. So I'm not saying any of those things are, are necessarily inherently wrong. What's wrong is our heart can put too much weight on them, and they can't bear it. They can't, they can't hold it up. When it comes to redemption and the good life, only will Jesus' blood do that. That's the only way it will be brought to us. So Peter's not done showing us the incalculable worth of Jesus' sacrifice. In verse 20, he goes on, he was foreknown from the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, of course he was. He was God, right? But this seems to indicate there's something more going on here. Well, remember at the beginning, um, in verse 3, we talked about God's great mercy. Um, his, his great mercy would be uh, shown to us. And when, I, when we preached on that, I said, the reason God created the universe and put human beings in it is so that he could display his great mercy, so he could enact it in, in creation. And so we were foreknown from the foundation of the world. We were elect, and we received great mercy. Well, now Peter is taking the other side of that, and he's saying that Jesus was foreknown. What he's saying is, it wasn't like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit went, oh, that didn't work. What should we do now? Let's scramble for a new plan. They created the world so that they could demonstrate their mercy, their grace, and, and the plan all along was that Jesus would come and die for us. He was foreknown from the foundation of the world. Well, God always existed, but the plan was always from the creation of the universe, this is how it's going to go. This is what we're going to do. And, and, and that's significant because it, it elevates that sacrifice of Jesus. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't a scramble at the end. This was the plan all along. Jesus is going to save us. But he was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Jesus has been man, made manifest. It is revealed, displayed, seen, shown in these last times. Now, the other time that Peter mentioned the last times was in chapter, or verse 5, when he said that our salvation was ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Jesus is, is manifest in the last time. Guess what? Jesus is our salvation. Our salvation, our hope is in Christ. And so he's, he's pushing our eyes upward, away from ourselves and into what Jesus has done for us. And then he addresses us, who through him are believers in God. What Jesus has done for us in redeeming us, what he's done in saving us, canceling our sin, is he's made us believers in God. He made us to believe in God. He came to reveal, he came to show, he came to bring that great mercy and so that we could see him. As a matter of fact, John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
That was Jesus' role. From the foundations of the world, Jesus, you're going to come and you're going to make us known to these people, these elect exiles, these ones that I have foreknown, you're going to show, your, show us to them. So he has made us um, believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So Jesus has died and he has risen and now he has received glory. And that's what's been made manifest to us. That's what we look at. So when Stephen, the, the first martyr, is being stoned, he looks into heaven and he sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of glory. He, he's drawing our eyes upward, away from the stones crushing his body, breaking his bones, fracturing his skull. He looks up and he sees something much more glorious, something greater, something grander, so that your faith and hope are in God. Not in your circumstances, not in the current situation, not in, in what's happening at this moment. Remember, the sermon series is titled Hope in the Exile. Our hope is in God. The nations rage. They plot a thing in vain. He who sits in the heavens scoffs. He, he laughs at them. He's accomplishing his purpose despite what the nations are on about. It, 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 whatever is happening, our hope and our faith are in God above everything else. So let's draw those three things together, those three imperatives, those three commands together for a moment. We are to hope in grace, which means we can't fa fear failure. We're, we're counting on God's grace. His great mercy will be shown to us. We're, we're to hope in that. And then in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear means that we won't be presumptive. So in, in hoping in grace, we're guard, the guardrail keeps us from fearing failure. We're going to hope in the grace of God. That's, that's what we're putting our trust in. And then the other rail says, conduct yourself with fear so you won't be presumptive. And think, well, then I can do anything I want, right? I can just, I can go wild. No, these two things will keep you on that path. And so what's the result? Verse 16, be holy. The response to this, the, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves in the middle of this is not, rampant amorality, or terrified fear and legalism. It is holiness. And it's an impossible standard. Be holy as I am holy. We can't be holy as God is holy. He's utterly other. As a matter of fact, um, last week, Joel did a, a Sunday school lesson. He explained holiness really well, I thought. It's not just that God is different. It's that he's beautifully different. He is gloriously different. He is so different that he is deserving of worship. And he said, now be holy as I am holy. I don't think I'm ever going to get anybody to drop down and worship me. It just isn't going to happen. And if it did, I would be upset. So how on earth are we supposed to be holy as he is holy? We're holy as he is holy because our conduct is lining up with Jesus Christ. We're covered in the, in the holiness of Jesus. And so that's the hope in, in uh, the righteousness. But it's something that we have to do. We have to begin to align our lives that way. And walk according to that. And we do that with those two guardrails. So that's the hope, is in grace and fear that Jesus has paid for our redemption. That we don't take that lightly. We don't look at it and say, well, it was no big deal. Or, golly, I'm so great. It, it, those two guardrails will keep us from falling into either one of those, those problems. This is how we hope in the exile. As we wander in this world, as, as we, we go through this, we don't conform to the world, we be holy. We don't lapse into despair, 
we hope in grace. We don't wallow in our sins. We walk in fear. And, and this is the picture that Peter is painting for us. He's drawing us into this. Can you have hope in the exile? I know it's going to be hard. It's, it's, it's harder for a lot of other Christians than it is for us. But Jesus made it possible for us to put our hope in God, to put our hope and our trust in God. And that's where he's calling us. So let's, let's come before our God with the hope of grace and fear. Let's pray. Lord God, we cannot be holy in and of ourselves. Lord Jesus, you paid a tremendous debt that we owed because of our sinfulness, because of our lack of holiness. But Lord, you've called us. You said, as you are holy, we are to be holy. And so Lord, thank you for giving us these two lines, these two guide rails, these two stripes on the road to keep us in the middle and to walk in holiness in your holiness, the holiness that you've given us in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that he has assigned to us because you foreknew him before the foundation of the world and you foreknew us. And Lord, our, our, our salvation is secure in you. It is, is secure in what you have done. Help us to walk it out, we pray. And Lord, I pray that you would stir in me first, but in this church and in Bible-believing churches across our country, fear, a fear of you, a, a, a fear of you that doesn't push away but draws in. Lord, as, as we renew our understanding of everything that you have done on our behalf, all the blessings that you've poured out on us in this new covenant, this covenant in Christ's blood, may we respond as Jacob did and be afraid and delight in it, delight in you. Because of our fear, would, we, would you cause us to worship you? Lead us, we pray, Lord, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.